This is They Create Worlds, episode 174, The Computer Price Wars, part 3. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We're back to you once more after... A brief hiatus, eating lunch, or dinner, or breakfast. Really depends on where you are. What about second breakfast? I like second breakfast. They never do understand second breakfast, do they? That and Thursdays, the two great mysteries. What about second breakfast on Thursday? That sounds frightening. But enough of our inane banter, because we are currently not just boring ourselves, but also boring a live audience. Because this is the last part of our three-part episode on the home computer price wars that is being filmed in front of a live studio audience, if Twitch constitutes a studio. One for the philosophers, I suppose. And an audience. We've got a few people. We've got a few diehards. Got some of our good friends of the show here. Ethan Johnson, friend of the show, of course. And quarter past, he of all things Canadian and FCC which seems like a strange dichotomy because the FCC isn't even Canadian. I know we have a few other people as well hanging out in the chat. Either that or they've left it on while they've gone to uh, drown their sorrows elsewhere. But we've got a few people still hanging in there, some true diehards. Appreciate seeing y'all. Glad you're here in order to lurk and enjoy the banter as you go. Why do those people just do weird facial expressions as they do odd accents and then talk about video game history? Wait, this is supposed to be about video game history? Yes. In our last episode, we saw the lines of war being drawn. We had the computers of the hobbyist moving forward into the land of consumer products. And then, through the grace of our Lord FCC, the prices were dropped. But then, people wanted to have more prices dropped. So, we had people drawing up great plans for computers. Texas Instruments, Commodore, some other guys. No one knows what's going to happen, except we all know that it's going to blow up, and only the one true computer will reign. It's like Highlander. Something like that. Yes, we have now hopefully established uh, very well what a home computer market is, what a home computer market looks like, and some of the players that are going to be involved in this home computer market. Now it's time to bring things to their inevitable conclusion. At our start here, we're going to have a few other special guests as we move along, but at our start here, just to recap, for those that are tuning back in after two-ish weeks rather than one hour, we have Commodore, who is really kind of, in many ways, pioneering this home computer market, because they're the ones that are really coming in and saying, look, we have a computer here and it's a toy. We know it's a toy. We don't care that it's just a toy. We're not trying to sell you on recipes and the checkbook. It plays games. You may learn a thing or two about how computers work, which will help set you up for future success in life, kiddos. So buy our computer. Captain Kirk said so. When Captain Kirk says, this computer is great, you know he knows what he's talking about. Because if it was a bad computer, he would have already killed it with the power of his logical mind. 
It's a terrible Shatner impression, I know. I was going for the cadence, not the way the voice actually works. But either way, that is Commodore. Then you have Texas Instruments, who has always fancied itself as a consumer computer company, but hasn't really been a consumer computer company up to this point because they overshot the market, went 16-bit. Texas Instruments does what comma don't. I don't know. Commodore isn't. Texas Instruments is what Commodore isn't. I don't know. They went all the way to 16-bit, overshot the market, and so we're way overpriced. And now they're finally getting prices back under control and are offering something that is an alternative, a little more pricey, but only a little at this point, and much more powerful. Then you have Atari, which uh, one could argue kind of kicked off the whole concept of a home computer to begin with, with the 400 and 800 computers back in 1979, but which has always just been kind of lackluster. They've had some problems figuring out their direction. They lost money their first two years in computers. They only sold about 35000 in the first year, which was a half year. They kind of, by the middle of 1982, got their numbers up to somewhere around 250, 300000 overall. They have a separate computer division now. They've kind of started to realize that trying to equally balance games, productivity software, education wasn't working as a strategy. So they have leaned a little bit more into games. They have opened up the platform a little more, but they're still kind of lost in this weird limbo where they don't really know what they want their computer business to be about and where they have intense infighting between their consumer electronics division, which is responsible for their successful video game business, and their home computer division, responsible for these 400 and 800 computers. And then kind of off in the corner, you have Tandy, which was one of the pioneers of the turnkey pre-assembled computer and has decided to wallow in the hobbyist market a little bit with the Tandy Color Computer, but their definition of success is just different from the others because they're really just feeding the beast that is the Radio Shack stores. They don't have these great ambitions to get out into the wider world, so as long as they sell a few computers here and there, keep people coming into the Radio Shack stores, they really don't care. We finally have computers in mass market retailers now for the first time. We have computers starting to take direct aim at the video game business, which is, at this point in 1981, just a wildly successful business. Can't keep up with demand at all. So there's certainly a lot of excitement around growing in that market and perhaps gobbling up some of that market by these computer makers. The story that comes is really a story of self-destruction. It's a story that we have seen over and over again in consumer electronics. We've talked about this in other episodes, where you get hot new consumer product that is fairly expensive. You get rapid price cuts due to uh, technological improvements, as well as better economies of scale in manufacturing, in distribution, etc., you get a real scrum by a bunch of companies diving into the market, and as everybody races to the bottom, the market immolates itself. That's really what the home computer price wars come down to as well. In terms of why this happened, as much as historians don't like to focus anymore on kind of great man history, there were certainly larger market forces at work that were also dictating how these prices went. This really did become, in a lot of ways, a slugging match between two individuals with very similar views on the market, that being Jack Trammell at Commodore and William Turner, Bill Turner, at Texas Instruments. Both of these individuals recognized that the key 
to success in this business was going to be getting as big a distribution as possible and get the price as cheap as you reasonably could while maintaining a profit. The problem here is that you had two companies that had very different propositions regarding what making a profit looked like. Because on the one hand, you had Texas Instruments, which did have vertical integration, which was good. It was making all of those video chips and 16-bit processors for those computers itself. But they were still very much an American manufacturing-based company. Commodore, on the other hand, was overseas. So not only did they have vertical integration, but they also had savings that came from taking advantage of that overseas manufacturing base where they could just get stuff done cheaper, quite frankly. They also had the advantage that they were still working in the realm of 8-bit processors and 5K, that very weird number again, of memory, whereas Texas Instruments was working with 16-bit and 16K. 16K was a far more reasonable amount of RAM to have in a computer by this point. We're not talking about functionality. We're not talking about reasonableness. We are talking about how low can you go in terms of price. Then, of course, the other wildcard is that Texas Instruments is refusing to acknowledge that the computer is a platform that anyone should be able to release software on. Commodore has an open platform. They have their internal products, they have their licenses, they have their special deals, but they're also not stopping the entire world from getting on their computer. This is actually beneficial in a couple of ways. It doesn't just open up the market more, but because there's this feeling that maybe video games and home computers are merging, you get some of the top companies on the computer game side from the nascent computer game industry, like Sierra Online, like Broderbund that start exploring the cartridge market by making games for the VIC computer. On the other side, you have Texas Instruments, who are insisting on people being licensed that are threatening to sue companies that dare to try to put software on their machine. The final kind of wild card is that Commodore has this real international reach. Commodore is established in Japan. Japan's not their strongest market, but they're there. Commodore's really strong in Europe, like insanely strong in Europe. Even after IBM releases their PC in 1981, in Europe, Commodore is seen as the gold standard in business microcomputing, not IBM. It's Commodore. Commodore is able to sell the VIC-20 to a worldwide audience. Texas Instruments is able to get some worldwide distribution as well. They're a big company, but they never, ever get anywhere near Commodore's ability to sell overseas. So it's a bit of a lopsided fight, but William Turner doesn't really get that. I think William Turner is very confident that this is TI. TI has been here before. TI is a gold standard in consumer electronics. TI has run companies out of the business before, and TI can triumph again with a combination of price cutting and increasing volume. At first, he's right. His strategy isn't entirely crazy, because there is some logic to that. If you can cut your own costs, which is going to happen as yields get higher, components get cheaper, etc., and if you can offset your shrinking margins by just getting more retailing deals, getting into more doors, getting more computers out there, you'll make up some of this. The first part of this price war really wasn't even a war. In the period kind of between the second half of 1981 and the first half of 1982, 
there isn't so much a price war as there is T.I. trying to sneak closer and closer and closer to the VIC-20. Now, there's not a lot of pressure on Commodore to get prices down because they are already the big one. But they do inch their prices down a little bit in this period. And the main way they inch those prices down, quite frankly, is by moving into the mass market retailers. They are able to give Kmart and others like them a bulk discount on their wholesale purchases, which then allows Kmart and these other stores to offer at a cheaper price. The computer that is technically a $300 computer can be offered at $250, maybe even $200 in some cases by Kmart and other stores of that type. This is actually sowing the seeds of the downfall of Jack Trammell in later years. It's not something we're going to focus on in this episode because it happens beyond the home computer price wars. But basically, Commodore began with the specialty computer stores because that was the market. They could get those orders right away. They could sell into those places. And they gave them the standard terms. Then they got into Kmart and they gave them better terms. Now, that happens sometimes in retail. Sometimes, as time goes along, either because of falling prices on your components or just being able to uh, sell a larger volume through to bigger companies, you may end up in a situation where you're able to offer at a cheaper price to your current customers than you could to your customers six months ago. What you're supposed to do from an etiquette standpoint when that happens is give your existing distribution base your existing retail base, a heads up and say, hey, we're moving into this new area. We're going to be cutting the price on the computer because we're giving these people a break. Just letting you know that you're really going to want to sell through your computers in the next couple of months here, because after that, it's going down in price. And if you're really nice, you may even say, and we will offer you a partial rebate on computers, items, whatever, that you're not able to sell in that time period. That's not exactly how Jack Trammell sees business. After all, he didn't want to do some R&D in order to see whether or not stuff would work. Jack Trammell is always about getting what you can when you can and not worrying about anyone else. I don't want to armchair psychologize too much because that can get dangerous. But we do have to remember that Jack was a Holocaust survivor. What he had to go through in the Polish ghettos and the German concentration camps I can't even begin to imagine, but I have to imagine that it does give you a certain outlook on what you have to do to survive. Jack was always very family first. Family, in this case, both meant his actual blood relatives, which were very important to him, but also those members of his organization that he trusted enough that he considered them part of the family. He was very much about looking out for his and his family's interests and making sure they got what they needed and everyone else was an obstacle to negotiate. It's kind of understandable how you could develop that mentality when that had to be something that he had to do to survive in the camps and then survive as an immigrant to the United States, a young married immigrant who knew no English and was looking for a better life than was available to him in post-war Europe. It's understandable. We can understand why Jack might be the way he is. But, understandable or not, the fact of the matter is he screwed over people all the time. He screwed over suppliers. He screwed over distributors. He screwed over retailers. 
He didn't believe in written contracts. He believed in handshake deals. Sometimes he honored those handshake deals, and sometimes he didn't. He, he probably didn't see them as not honoring the deal. It's probably more that he saw the deal as being the deal of the moment. And later on, because there were no terms, no set term to the deal, he could do a new deal. He would be altering the deal, and his only response to everyone else would be, pray, I do not alter it further. He screwed over his original distributors, his original retailers, the specialty stores. He did not give them a chance to clear out their inventory at the higher price. He did not offer a rebate on stock that they had already been given. He hung them out to dry. He gave them inventory that they could not sell unless they cut the price to match the mass market retailers. But as soon as they cut the price, they were no longer making a profit. So they were selling the computers at a loss. That was a bit skeevy. But on the whole, the price of the VIC-20 was pretty steady in this period. Yeah, it kind of drifted down from 300 to 250 and some places may have even been selling it for 200 after all, manufacturers suggested retail price and what stores are actually selling for are often going to be very different because it's all dependent on what terms the individual stores can get and what their margins look like. They were pretty much just cruising along. Meanwhile, it was Texas Instruments that over the course of about that year period were starting to slowly sneak down in price. 550 to 450. That sounds good. 450 to 375. 375 to 300. That's good, I think. Over the course of that first year, they are slowly dipping down in price, but they're not losing money doing it. Because at this point, William Turner is being very savvy. What he's doing is he is increasing the retailer base to offset the dwindling margins. He's able to close larger and larger deals with larger and larger retailers therefore make up the margins that he's losing through this process. The first kind of year of this war is fairly stable. 1981, the home computer market is still not too much of a thing. Nobody really sells very many. Estimates vary wildly as to how much of this or that, what the install base looked like, but we're only talking about a few hundred thousand units. We're not talking about a big market. However, as 1982 rolls around, people are starting to take much more notice of these cheap computers. The advertising is working. The, the idea that maybe this is a more noble purchase than a video game is starting to draw attention. The prices are good, which is drawing attention. More software is coming out, which is drawing attention, and a whole new kind of front in this burgeoning war is beginning to open as another claimant enters the market. We may recall that Jack Trammell was inspired to do a lower-cost computer, what ultimately became the VIC-20, after he came to Britain and saw that ZX-80. Sinclair's been doing a good job selling computers in the United Kingdom, and their partner in this venture is the Timex Corporation, which most people think about as being a timepiece company, a watch company, but they're also actually a very, very big manufacturing operation. They have a big factory in Dundee, Scotland. I'm sure they have others as well. Sinclair closed a deal with Timex to be the manufacturer of his computers, so they were providing all of that stock. 
The ZX-80 and the ZX-81 were actually available in very limited quantities in the United States. They were made available via mail order. There wasn't really an established retail presence. But as the prices of these other computers were going down, and as there seemed to be a new low-price computer market opening up in the United States, Timex, which of course is an international company, much more so than Sinclair, couldn't help but notice that prices were going down and there might actually be a place in the market for the computers they're manufacturing for Sinclair. So they make a deal with Sinclair to take a modified version of the ZX81, which obviously was made to work with NTSC, the broadcast standard in the United States, but was also changed in a few other ways, most notably by having double the RAM, all the way from 1K of memory to wait for it, wait for it, 2K of memory, (gasps) and release that computer in the United States as the Timex Sinclair 1000, or the TS-1000, as it was sometimes called. This was a whole new breaking of the price barrier, because they were going to make this computer available for $99.95, the first under $100 home computer. Obviously, this cannot do much. I mean, it's not that much cheaper than the Vic, and it does a whole lot less. They positioned it as a computer trainer. This was very similar to what companies like Magnavox in the video game industry were doing in 1978 when they thought the home computer was going to arrive at that time. It's like, look, here's something really cheap, something everyone can afford, and this can help your child really learn how computers work and what they are. That was basically the pitch. It was released in July of 1982, and it was living in its own separate space, like even apart from, we now had kind of four categories. You had the trainer computer, where uh, Timex was living all by itself, then you had the home computers, and then you had the so-called personal computers that were more in the 1,000 to 3,000 range, like your forthcoming IBM PC and, and your Apple II and all of that stuff. And, and then you had you know even more expensive systems above that. Now things are getting interesting. I don't think either Texas Instruments or Commodore really saw Timex as, as much of a threat. But nonetheless, things are moving, moving in a little more. Meanwhile, Atari has not been idle. They can't help but notice that this new market is taking shape, and so they take some steps to continue to be a part of it as well. At the beginning of 1982 in January, they cut the price of both of their computers, the 400 and the 800. They had cut the price of the 400 once before the year before from about $630 to about $500. They had not cut the 800 at that time. Now they're cutting both of them. The 400 is going to start retailing for 399 and the 800 for 899. So their top end is not quite in home computer space anymore, but they're trying to close the gap a little bit because they're in a kind of weird position where they're not quite a home computer but they're not quite a personal computer. I mean the 800 would be considered that, but the technology's a little long in the tooth at some point. That creates kind of a problem as well. Status quo is kind of maintained at that point until August of 1982, when William Turner receives a promotion to the president of TI Consumer Products. Up to that point, there had kind of been a balance between William Turner, who was marketing this thing, and Bynum, who was the engineer and who kind of brought the engineer's perspective to this whole thing. 
one wasn't really above the other. They kind of had to come sometimes to some kind of consensus about how things were going to go, Don Bynum and William Turner. Now Turner's in charge of the whole thing. He has carte blanche to implement all of his marketing strategies without having to pay attention to anyone else except the people at headquarters like J. Fred uh, Busey, who's in charge of the whole thing. At this point, he makes the fateful decision that he needs to crush Commodore right out of the market. So on September 1st, 1982, big day. Texas Instruments announces that their $300 TI-99-4A computer will now include a $100 rebate, which, as long as you fill out all the forms and do it right and turn in the rebate, brings the TI-99-4A to $200, $50 below the official list price of the VIC-20. This was truly the first shot of the war, and it really was a shot across the bow. There was no point, really, in TI doing that, except for thumbing their nose at Commodore and bringing the price down below them. At $300, that computer was already a decent enough value. At this point, they are coming for Commodore hot and fast. Commodore responds almost immediately. They cut the price of the VIC-20 by $40, bring it down to around $210. And that's kind of where things stand for the rest of the year. It's interesting, and we don't have any insights because, obviously, Bill Turner is, has never really been interviewed. I don't know if he's still alive. I mean, he could be. He'd be in his 70s. But obviously, he wasn't very keen to give a postmortem at the end of all of this disaster. But for whatever reason, Turner decided that price was the only way to go. He had a superior computer. He could have touted the superiority of the system. He could have done just what Sega did against Nintendo when they had the Genesis before the uh, SNES launched in the United States and done TI does what Commo don't. Touted the 16-bit processor, touted the increased memory, touted the better graphics, touted everything. It was a superior computer, and it wasn't that much more expensive. But he decided he couldn't, for whatever reason, that he couldn't compete on technology. He had to compete on price. I don't know if it's because he was, I mean, he was a marketer, but he's been around computer companies. He's not super tech savvy, but he must understand some of this. It's not like he came from outside the industry. He was a deck, but he decided price was the only way. They did the $100 rebate, and this was coming directly out of the margins. Now, it was still profitable. But unlike the previous price cuts, which had been accomplished by finding savings elsewhere, This price cut was having their margins. They weren't losing money, but they weren't making nearly as much. You know what? In the United States, it worked. There's a lot of contention between Texas Instruments people and Commodore people about which one was really the best seller. A lot of the press at the time said that Texas Instruments was outselling Commodore. Commodore people scoff at that and say, there's no way. We were wiping the floor with them and everyone knew it and it was ridiculous that they were reporting that way. There's no doubt that the VIC-20 outsold the TI-99 overall, because what Commodore had that Texas Instruments didn't is that worldwide reach. It sold a lot of units in Europe as well. The VIC-20 became, eventually, the first computer to ever sell a million units. Texas Instruments did not approach that. We have a few different estimates from different organizations. Future Computing thinks that they were both neck and neck at roughly half a million each in 1982 domestically. 
though, again, they give the edge to Commodore on the whole because Commodore had much more in worldwide sales. They put Commodore's total install base for the year at north of 700,000, of which about 600-ish thousand of those were sold in 1982. They put Texas Instruments' share at a little over 500,000, including the worldwide sales, and a little under 500,000 in the United States alone. The Yankee Group, which put out a marketing study where they were measuring just computer sales to the home, and I believe measuring just the United States, not measuring worldwide, seemed to think that Commodore sold about 485,000 systems into the home in 1982, whereas TI sold in their estimation, 395,000, so they did put Commodore ahead of TI. Interestingly, they put Timex ahead of both of them. It is true that Timex, within that first half year, sold north of 500,000 systems, according to all reports. I think as much as anything, just because it was so cheap. Regardless, though, there was a big home computer market groundswell now, and there was a price war going, and at the moment, it was working in Texas Instruments' favor. Sales were picking up. They were gaining steam against Commodore. According to some accounts, they were beating Commodore. Even if they weren't beating Commodore, they were very close to Commodore. The retail presence was expanding. Of course, the technology would continue to get cheaper, and we were on our way. There was just one problem. At this point, the VIC-20 was not even the only Commodore computer. Because in late 1982, they introduced a little system called the Commodore 64. I know that one. It's really interesting because just like the VIC-20, the Commodore 64 is a computer that was never supposed to happen. Commodore is a company that under Jack Trammell was very focused on expanding into very specific markets and expanding their presence against very specific competitors. He was always telling people, do a kill this, do a kill that, do an Apple killer, do an IBM killer. Later on at Atari, do a Macintosh killer. You know, he's always talking about kill this system, kill that system. And a lot of those systems don't end up doing very well. They often end up getting canceled as they're going along. But at the same time, you have very talented engineers, particularly at Moss Technology, working on chips that they end up getting into computers. While the VIC-20 was starting to clean up on the low end, Jack was once again looking at dominating the so-called personal computer market, the space that kind of Apple lived in, where it's more like the 1,000 to 3,000 range and is a little more powerful, and was looking at dominating the business market. They were looking at creating two new computers, the P128 and the B256. The numbers represent memory size, and then the P is for personal, the B is for business. That's how they were classifying these computers. That's what everyone's focus was on. But again, they were having trouble because they were falling more and more behind in chip expertise. They were having trouble giving full form to these computers. Meanwhile, you had a couple of other guys that were just messing around with other stuff in the background. There was a growing sense in the engineering group that they really should do some kind of follow-up to the VIC-20. From an engineering perspective, they were never happy that all they could do was a 20-column display. 22 columns, technically, but around 20-column display. Because the de facto standard, even in cheaper computers, was 40 columns. It was 80 columns for business computers, but even the other cheaper computers was 40 columns, and they had been trying to do that with their Apple Killer the toy, and they just didn't do it. The engineers at Moss just kept chugging away at it and actually came up 
with a successor chip to the VIC called the VIC-40 that could actually do a 40-column display. The other thing that was going on within MOS technology at the time is they had another young engineer that had fairly recently joined the company by the name of Bob Giannis, who was really fascinated with electronic music. Even before he had joined Commodore, he was involved in the really early kind of electronic music hobbyist scene. He loved synthesizers, and he took it upon himself. I mean, it wasn't really something anyone asked for, but he was a young engineer. He was starting out. He had some leeway to to poke around, and, and on his own initiative, he started creating his own sound chip called the SID. Again, I'm not an audio engineer. I'm not an audio expert. But in the context of early 1980s sound chips, it was just, it was absolutely mind-blowing. Giannis would go on to co-found Insonic after his days at Commodore. I mean, he's really, he is a god, as Jeff is a god in the editing world. Bob Giannis is definitely a god in the sound chip and uh, computer synthesizer world. Motion to being editing hero, which is lower than a god. <laughs> So these chips were coming along, and they were kind of looking for uses of them, and and the Japanese branch of the company actually were like, hey, let's do a video game system. Yashikura started doing the Commodore Max machine, which was a video game system. The other engineers at Moss, they were really pushing, like, we've got these really awesome chips, this VIC-40 and the SID chip. We should do an update to the VIC-20. There was a lot of resistance to this. That isn't what the company was looking for. They were looking for breaking into these new markets. They already had the low-end market. They didn't feel they needed to upgrade in the low-end market. They already had that. The next step was to take over the mid-range market and take over the high-range market. At first, I think Jack was probably on the fence as well. But I think, you know, just reading between the lines, I think what really kind of convinced Jack in the end was at the same time, memory prices were coming down. Memory was getting cheap enough that it would be conceivable to put 64K of memory as a base in a new mid-range home computer. You know, we're not going to be back down to 200 again, but get back up to the 500, 600 range and go 64K. 64K was a pretty significant milestone in this time. You know, the, the home computers were still mostly 16K. You were starting to see expansion into the 48K space. Certainly Apple computers at this point were most often coming out with at least 48K. Atari, actually, in the middle of 1982, had upgraded the base Atari 800 system so that it would come standard with 48K without raising the price. They didn't do a price cut on the 800, but they kept it at the same price while significantly upping the memory. 48K was starting to become the standard. 64K would not only leapfrog that, but it was also kind of the maximum addressable memory for the 6502. So it represented in that way that kind of watershed as well. So this was a kind of big deal. And Jack, since the memory prices were falling and that they could put something out in the latter half of 1982 that would be reasonably priced while having 64K of memory. So at that point, he gave the green light to this computer. Since they were working on the P128, personal computer 128K, and the B256, business computer 256K, they called this the C64 because it was their consumer computer in that low-end market, 64K of memory. 
So the computer that was not even on the drawing board suddenly became the thing that they had to scramble and finish within a couple of months to get ready for the CES in June 1982, which is often what happened at Jack Trammell's Commodore. So now Commodore is coming in hot and fast. Still an 8-bit processor. It's the 6510, which is a 6502 variant. But now it's coming in with 64K of memory. The VIC-2 chip is capable of double the resolution. We're up to 320 by 200, which was a very good standard resolution at that time. 16 colors instead of 8 colors. Great sprite machine. Everybody's kind of realizing the importance of sprites to games, and all of these computers are very much meant to be game machines. If there's one fault to this poor computer, it's that there's a little mistake in the process of creating, because you see, they decided as a way of getting the computer ready for CES fast and as a way of keeping costs down, they decided that they would use the same case as the VIC-20. This was a big problem because the motherboard to contain all of these enhancements was a bigger motherboard. They had real problems trying to stuff that thing into the case. I mean, they were doing lots of things to rejigger the way it fit together. But at one point, some genius basically cut off one edge of the board, just a little bit from one edge of the board, in order to get that little extra space that they needed. There was just one problem. That little smidge of board that they decided to cut off there was where they were running the new high-speed disk drive lines. Oops. I kind of need that for, you know, loading the game, so I'm not, oh, I wish to play my Commodore 64 game. This wonderful little disk, put it into the disk drive, type load, comma, eight, comma, star, enter... I'm going to go get dinner and hope this is done before bedtime. Yeah, it wasn't, as some people speculate, Jack being cheap. It wasn't that the engineers were dumb and didn't think they should have a faster disk drive. It was that in the rushed process to get this thing to fit in a VIC-20 case and have it ready in time for CES... Somebody chopped off those lines, and nobody who had knowledge that this had happened really realized what a big deal that was, and the people that knew that it was a big deal didn't realize it had happened until it was too late. So that's why we were left with that abominably slow drive. I will also interject here at this point, because we are paying attention to chat since this is a live episode, and quarter past, Dale is correctly pointing out that while this was a 64K machine and they could advertise that legitimately— A lot of that was reserved to the machine. About 38K of it was reserved for basic. So the end user didn't get to use all of it. But it was still a jump above certainly the VIC-20, but also the TI-99-4A as well. Now we have, as we get to the latter half of 1982, we have two new combatants entering the field. Because now we have a new guy on the lowest low end, Timex Sinclair. And we have a new guy on the upper end of the home computer market, which is the $595 Commodore 64. Now we're really set up for a scrum in 1983. This is the point where the market starts to get absolutely crazy, because the video game companies at this point can't help but notice what's going on on their flank. They're realizing that these computers are very effective game machines, and it's basically shots fired. They are saying, buy us instead of buying a video game system. 
there's a real sense throughout the industry that we could be back where we thought we were going to be in 1978, where the computers are going to take over this business and leave us behind. Mattel, we're not going to cover this in depth, but Mattel throughout this entire time has desperately been trying to get its keyboard enhancement going because they did initially position themselves as something you could upgrade to a computer, and they still wanted to accomplish that, especially after all of their advertising shenanigans where they were advertising this keyboard component brought them to the attention of the federal government who was ready to go after them for false advertising and start fining them if they didn't bring out this product that they had promised. Atari is in the computer business, and so they're already making plans to try to stay relevant in that business. They know that the 400 and the 800 are long in the tooth, so they're starting to look at upgrades, changes, improvements. Even Coleco, the new kid on the block in video games, is starting to see that there could be something else going on here. It's kind of interesting. They take very divergent routes here. Mattel takes the weirdest route. They decide they're going to live down with the cheapies. Their manufacturing partner, they're actually one of the early guys in Hong Kong as well, because the the toy industry went there faster than the electronics industry did. So they were already kind of had good relationships in Hong Kong before they got in the video game industry. Mattel's partner in manufacturing the Intellivision is Radofin in Hong Kong. Radofin is not just a manufacturing company. They've also been involved in designing hardware at various times, and they've actually developed a low-cost computer hardware. So Mattel decides that they're going to head off this threat by bringing out a new, very low-cost computer, the Mattel Aquarius. This was a rather strange decision. They were really competing down with Timex. They were really creating essentially another computer trainer because they were planning to release at just $160 a Z80 machine with 4K of RAM. So a little more powerful than a Timex Sinclair computer, but nothing that's going to hold a candle to the Vic or anything like that. The running joke around Mattel Electronics, according to some of the people that were there, was that the tagline for the Aquarius should be the Mattel Aquarius, the computer of the 1970s today, because it was just so behind the times. Coleco took the opposite approach, and they took what was actually a very canny approach. It didn't work for them, but it was a very canny approach. They decided, okay, if these companies are racing to the bottom on the price of these home computers, these toy computers, why don't we provide something that is going to bridge the gap between the $1,000 to $3,000 personal computer market and this cheap market? Why don't we create something that is actually usable for more than playing games? that is usable for doing word processing, that's usable for doing spreadsheets, that's usable for doing home accounting. Usable for doing recipes. Usable for doing dial-up Unix to download Vogue. So they came up with doing a, what they planned to be a $525 computer, though they eventually had to raise the price to a little above $700, that would be a complete package with a computer and a printer and the basic software on cartridge that would allow you to do basic things like word processing very easily and without much fuss. So now we're trying to bring the home computer market back in the other direction. This is kind of a reaction to prices getting so low and power getting so low, is now you have, after you've gotten so low on the VIC-20 and the TI, you've got Scoot in the other direction, where you have Coleco coming in with the Atom, Commodore coming in with the C64, and Atari coming in with their new system, in 1983, which is going to be the 1200XL, 
which is going to be replacing the 800 at the same price, 899. So it's still a little higher than the others, but they're also going to cut the price of the 800 a little bit to move those final units. So now you've got a real crazy scrum developing. You have computer companies in there, and now you've got the video game companies in there as well, because they're feeling threatened and they feel that they need to respond to this market at the same time. It's in this environment that Commodore starts to get really aggressive. Now, Texas Instruments started this. Texas Instruments came after Commodore first. You're talking about who started the war, who shot the Archduke. I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that it was Texas Instruments, because Commodore was just minding its own business. Commodore came up with this idea first of doing a really low-cost computer. I mean, they came up with the idea before TI did. They were borrowing from the British, but they were doing it in a way better than the British because they weren't going quite as junky as Clive Sinclair was. So they were just minding their own business at the low end of the market. TI, as we said earlier, could have just been fine. You're going to do that. We're going to tout the performance of our computer over years, and we're going to buy our market share by showing that we're better than you. But they didn't choose to do that. They chose to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to say, we have the better system, and we're just as cheap, if not cheaper. But now Jack is here to play, because he remembers the calculator wars. 1972 and 1974, when Commodore was brought to the brink of bankruptcy by Texas Instruments, who brutally undercut everybody. You know, Jack Trammell is famous for the quote, business is war. This really wasn't business is war. This was even worse. This is business is personal. You know how they say in The Godfather, you know, when they're about to off somebody in a competing mafia family, you know, it's not personal, it's only business. Well, Jeffrey, this is no longer business. This is personal. And remember, Jack is a very family-first kind of guy. He thinks in terms of family. He thinks in terms of protecting your own. And he sees his own threatened by the same company that nearly killed everything a decade ago. So this is no longer business. This is personal. And he has the tools to really squeeze T.I., because he can hit them on the low end with the VIC-20 and hit them on the high end with the C-64 and kind of squeeze them out in the middle. Jack is very much, I will be getting you next time, Texas Instruments. And this time, I may not have started this fight, but I will be very sure to end it. And it will be very unpleasant. But me and little Kapu here will be very, very happy to see Texas Instruments die. Horribly. By taking that computer there, putting it into that box there, and rolling it into that fat of acid there. Bonus points if you get that reference. So, Jack fires the opening salvo in January 1983 with uh, CES. Commodore cuts the price of the VIC-20 from about $210 to $125. And he cuts the price of the C64 from $595 to $399. Because the thing is, the Commodore 64 is a new computer using new chips, the new SID chip and the new VIC-40 chip. So as they ramp up production, they're able to increase their yield rate. This is a big part of the reason why the cost of chips goes down over time is because when you're creating chips, you've got this big old wafer that has tons and tons and tons of chips on it. And then you cut each individual chip out of that giant wafer and those are your chips. 
because this is a very finicky process and because you're talking about doing things on on a micron level, I mean, a very small level, not every one of those chips on your wafer actually works. This is especially true in the beginning when you're still working on your tooling, you're still working on your processes, and, and it's very finicky. When you refer to the yield rate, we've said this before on the show, when you're referring to the yield rate on semiconductors, you're talking about how many chips cut out of that individual giant wafer are actually good chips. Well, now that they've been doing this for a while, the yield rate is going up on these chips, which means that the cost per chip is going down because you're getting more bang for your buck. They're able to organically, in the case of the C64, actually cut the price rather rapidly because their yield rates on those chips go up rather rapidly. Now they're at 125 for the VIC-20 and 399 for the Commodore 64. At this point, Texas Instruments is trapped because they've decided, for whatever reason, to stake their entire reputation on price. So they have to follow. They wouldn't have had to follow if they had taken a different marketing path, but at this point, they have to follow. Furthermore, Bill Turner apparently gets a case of hubris out of this. I mean, again, we don't have a lot of sources from within TI, but the understanding is that after they had the great sales spurred by the price cut in late 1982, they thought that they had reached a new level of success for computers, that this was a breakthrough based on the new price. And while certainly the price cut spurred some sales, what he wasn't taking into account or what TI wasn't taking into account is this price cut also corresponded with the holiday season. In this period of time, big-budget purchases like computers are still very much seasonal items that you buy at Christmas. So TI started projecting first half of 1983 sales based on the growth curve of end of 1982 sales. But that wasn't in any way realistic, because even if the overall market was going to grow in 1983, and spoiler alert, the overall market does grow in 1983, The curve isn't going to continue at the same rate at the end of 1982 because those are supercharged holiday sales. So TI started publicly projecting 7 million home computer sales in 1983. There were about 2.4 million in home computer sales in 1982, with a lot of those coming at the end of the year once the price cuts on the VIC-20 and the uh, TI-99 really kicked in, plus the Commodore 64 launched. They were publicly projecting that those sales of the home computer market were going to grow all the way to 7 million because they thought that, like, Christmas 1982 was the new normal. And spoiler alert, that wasn't the new normal. He said 3 million of those would be Texas Instruments computers. I mean, I guess he was being a little bit humble by saying that they wouldn't quite take 50% of the market. But that's a big jump. You know, they sold somewhere, you know, like I said, the estimates vary from place to place, but they sold probably somewhere between 400 and 600,000 computers in 1982. He said that they were going to jump all the way up to 3 million. It's like, okay, none of the independent analysts thought that was going to happen. They thought it was going to be more like 4 million computers. And spoiler alert, that was a far more reasonable projection for what the market was going to look like in 1983. But it's like they were completely divorced from reality at this point. I think that at this point, Turner felt that he could keep cutting the price and keep matching Commodore because even though his costs were higher, he thought he was going to grow his base so much. I mean, let me tell you how, they, how much they were trying to grow their base. You know, I talked about how they were getting into the department stores, the discount stores, the toy stores, all of that stuff. At the time, it all fell apart and Texas Instruments got out. 
They were negotiating with 7-Eleven to put TI computers in their stores. Convenience store computers. That just seems wrong to me. (laughs) I don't know. And we don't know what Turner was thinking because, you know, he hasn't given interviews on this. But he just really thought that they would get computers into every outlet. And by getting computers into every outlet, they'd be able to repair their margins enough that they could cut prices and keep up with Commodore, even though Commodore's costs were much lower than TI's costs. Now, TI was not oblivious to what was happening in the market either. They were not resting their entire laurels on the TI-99 4A. Because as I mentioned earlier, we had movements going in both directions, kind of bifurcating from this low-cost market. We had these trainer computers that were coming in at $100 a pop, or a little more than that, with Timex and now Mattel getting in there. Then you had these upper-level computers like the Commodore 64, the Atari 1200 XL, the Coleco Atom that were coming in at a higher level, bringing the market back up to kind of the 600 level where it had been before. So TI started working on two new computers. They started working on one they called the 99-2, the riff being half of four is two, that was going to go down and compete with Timex. Why they felt they needed to compete with Timex, I don't know, but they did. Then they were working on the 99-8, with, you know, eight being twice four, that was going to reclaim the market that Commodore and Coleco were trying to take from them up above. I mean, at this point, it feels like TI is losing touch with reality. I mean, I don't know that you can really say that Commodore killed them so much as TI deserved kind of a Darwin Award for killing itself. Almost like a satirical thing where you have all this fighting going on, everyone's having a grand old time going back and forth, and T.I. just goes completely insane, just starts, run away, run away, and runs off a cliff. Now, there were other ways to make money besides on the hardware, because we have to remember that they're also peripherals. And this was a period of time which is very different from the computer market today where you didn't really have third-party peripheral companies. I mean, I'm sure you had a few kicking around, but in general, for things like joysticks or interface devices, you had peripheral companies. But if you were buying a printer to go with your computer, it was also being made by the company making your computer. If you were buying a modem for your computer, it was being made by the same company. You didn't have to buy a monitor from the same company. I mean, many of these computers were made to run on your television set because they really were trying to make them cost-friendly and user-friendly. But you could also buy monitors, and there were various other expansion items. So TI was also hoping that they could make back some of what they were losing in peripherals as well. They were not out of the fight, but they were starting to struggle mightily, especially since a lot of the profits they did make were squandered by doing a recall for some faulty product at the same time that all of this is going on. So then on April 4th, 1983, really sensing the blood in the water at this point, Jack Trammell cuts the price of the VIC-20 to $99. This is just an utter disaster, and it's not just a disaster for Texas Instruments. It's also a disaster for Timex. Remember the little engine that could, that was chugging along with a sub-$100 computer that could do not much of anything at all? Well, now the VIC-20 that can do a lot more is the same price. Well, that certainly leads to the death kneel for them. Yeah, Timex basically has to cut the price to 50 and start the process of just completely bailing out of the market. At this point, things are spiraling out of control, and Bill Turner is finally 
let go and is replaced by a company man, Jerry Junkins, which seems like an ill-fated name to bring this to a conclusion. Because everything's junk? Mm-hmm. He's brought in to manage consumer electronics, while Mr. J. Fred Busey himself, the number two man at the company, the COO and president, directly took over the home computer debacle, a real sign that the end was coming. Bill Cosby went away. They stopped trying to tout it as a toy computer or a personal computer or a home computer. They started trying to tout it as an educational computer trying to counter some of what Commodore was doing in their own marketing. At CES, they were forced to lower the price to $99 because orders had just stopped. Jack Trammell responded by doing two things. First of all, he cut the price of most of Commodore's peripherals by half. The peripheral market was about the last hope And it wasn't a very strong hope, but it was about the last hope that TI had to recoup the losses they were getting on the core systems. And now Commodore was super undercutting them there as well. The other thing that Jack did at CES is he cut the price of the C64 again to $200. So now, if you just want a little toy game computer in the home, you can buy a VIC-20 for the same price as a TI-99. If you want something that's a little more capable, you can buy a C64 for just $100 more than a TI-99. At this point, in a lot of ways, it's a more powerful computer. Not in every way, but in a lot of ways. The vice has now squeezed shut around Texas Instruments. There is no saving this. So on October 28th, 1983, Texas Instruments officially departs the computer business. They had long since canceled the 99.2. As soon as the VIC-20 got down to 99, they knew that was no good. They kept trying to cling on for a while, waiting for the 99.8 to come together. But it was an absolute disaster of a project. They were supposed to unveil it at the June CES. It was codenamed Armadillo. And they couldn't. It was such a disaster. It was in such a state of unreadiness that they kept it behind locked doors and showed it to almost nobody. So once it was clear that the 99.8 was not going to be a savior, and once it was clear that there was no path back to profitability for the 99-4A, they did the inevitable and they shut down the entire computer business. Jack Trammell had won. TI-99 started getting dumped for about $50 as well. And then Jack Trammell did a real coup de grace to spur further sales of the C-64. He started offering a $100 rebate on the C64 if you sent in an old computer, any old computer you wanted, along with your purchase order. Now, this had the amazingly funny effect of actually boosting sales of the TS-1000 and the TI-99 at the end of the year. Because at this point, both of those computers were going for like $50. So consumers could do the math, buy a $50 computer, Send it into Commodore, get a $100 rebate, and pocket an extra 50 bucks. <laughs> so if you look at the sales numbers for both TI and Timex in 1983, the estimated sales figures, the sales figures are very, very good. The Yankee Group estimates that TI sold 1.4 million computers in 1983, which ain't the 3 million that Turner was promising but still ain't terrible. 
I think their numbers are a little inflated because their total numbers come in at 5 million, which I think is a little high. Well, but the 5 million's also counting higher-end computers because it's not just the low-end. So I don't know. It depends on how you slice the home computer market. It has Timex selling another 500,000 computers, 545,000. Now, Commodore's killing them all because they're selling nearly a million VICs and over 800,000 C64s. So when you put those two together, they're just, they're killing everybody. You know, if you look at that, you're like, wow, those computers sold a lot. I mean, the market grew to like 4.8 million, according to some estimates. That's really good. But it only was that good because the prices got so ridiculously low that people were buying them at bargain basement prices, sometimes specifically to turn in to Commodore. And really, those companies were making no money. Texas Instruments was losing hundreds of millions of dollars. Of course, at the same time, Atari is imploding. They're imploding largely because of what happened in their console business, but it's taking their computer business down with them. And they lose any opportunity to be competitive in this period. Because first they released that Atari 1200 that I mentioned. This was their upgrade to the 800. The problem was that the 1200 was not fully backward compatible with the previous systems, and it was a bit overpriced and it was a mess. So they replaced that as fast as they possibly could. They came out with two new computers, the 600XL and the 800XL, and they really focused on getting the price down. The new head of the Atari Home Computer Division And then after that, when they reorganized the head of the Atari products company that had responsibility for this young Cavalier, he came out of the paper goods business where price is essential. And he had a really strong focus on getting costs under control. So they really aggressively moved manufacturing overseas to Hong Kong, and they really tried to get costs under control. And so the 600XL and the 800XL were going to come out in the fall of 1983 at very competitive prices, $199 and $299. So they're kind of right there in the mix as well. But because the company has fallen apart and Ray Kassar has been fired, there's turmoil in upper management. Kassar's replacement, James Morgan, doesn't join the company until September. They had no real succession plan in place. And he immediately put everything on hold while he spent about a month wrapping his head around the business. There were crucial decisions that needed to be made in that period of time about the 600XL and the 800XL related to their manufacturing that got pushed off because of this decision by Morgan. As a result, while they did ship that year, they were not able to build up a large amount of inventory. So even though those computers did okay, they didn't do terribly, they were completely hamstrung by limited inventory, and they were unable to compete with Commodore at all. Between the two computers together, they sold less than 200,000 of them, not because they were seen as failures, but because they couldn't manufacture anything. They basically handed the market to the competition for 1983, and because of Atari's continuing woes, that was basically it. That was kind of their last shot to be big in this home computer market, and they blew it. Of course, Coleco, we did an episode on Coleco. We don't need to dwell on this here, but basically, they made some real mistakes with the hardware they used for their Atom computer. Most importantly, in the drives they used, which weren't quite cassettes and weren't quite floppy disks and were just terrible. They had horrible manufacturing problems, uh, particularly with the printer, because printers are hard people. So they were only able to get 50,000 machines to market in 1983. There was excitement in the market for what they had to offer but they didn't have inventory. And by the time they did have inventory, the excitement for the product was gone. Because by that time, other companies were jumping into the same market. Commodore was releasing its Atom Killer, because Commodore does this. 
This is what they do. They look at what the other guy's doing and they try to copy it. So Commodore started working on their own variant computer that came with its own pre-bundled software, which was the Commodore Plus 4. Now, that computer didn't end up being a successful computer, but it was Commodore encroaching on the territory that Adam tried to take. And of course, IBM, noticing this whole home computer thing opening up, decides that they should get in on the action as well and release their own home computer, the PC Junior, so that they can start to dominate this low-end market the same way that they are beginning to dominate the business market. So there's just no room for a toy company like Coleco at that point. If, if they had been able to ship the Atom and Quantity in 1983 and it had actually worked right, which was not realistically going to happen, but if for the sake of argument that had happened, then they may have had enough recognition to keep that going into 84 and 85 and build market share. But as it was, their moment to, in, to kind of seize a unique spot in the market past the moment they couldn't ship the Atom in 1983. That was the home computer market in 1983. It expanded. More computers were sold. More people got into it. The Commodore 64, even though it was released in 82, really began its march to success in 1983. But it killed the market. There really wasn't any market at that point. The market started retreating to a higher ground again. Commodore kept decreasing prices of things, obviously, because they do that. In 1984, they brought the VIC-20 down to $79 for instance. Atari cut the price of the 600XL to try to follow them down the market as well. Tandy was still out there, but nobody really cared about the Coco. It it hung on. I think they made them until 1991, but I mean, it was never a factor in the industry. And and Tandy, quite frankly, was fine with that because, I mean, their measure of success was very different than everyone else's. But after the bloodbath of 83, everyone kind of agreed that there really wasn't a home computer market, that consumers were willing to follow the prices down for a time and and buy these bottom basement systems, but there really wasn't a purpose to them. So in 1984, estimates were much lower for how home computers were going to do. Estimates were slashed. Commodore was the market leader at this point. Jack Trammell, of course, was not around to enjoy this as he ended up resigning, quitting the company due to his ongoing disputes with Irving Gould, chairman of the company, who had a lot of power over him because of some issues that had happened back in old Canada in the 1960s. Atari is fluttering around in there, and of course Jack Trammell takes it over in the middle of 1984. IBM is a gigantic flop. The PC Junior has a few different problems, but the main two are that it doesn't have true backward compatibility with the regular IBM PC, and it has a so-called chiclet keyboard that nobody likes. It's priced too high compared to something like the Commodore 64. It doesn't really justify its its purpose. If you're going to spend more than a Commodore 64 on a home computer, you want something that can do the kinds of things that a regular PC can do, and the PC Junior wasn't that. So it's, it's kind of an anticlimactic failure. Kind of after the whole home computer market had crashed and burned, IBM came along with their PC Junior to reconfirm that, yes, you aren't imagining things. The whole home computer market has really crashed and burned. Now, computers were still sold in 1984. There was still something of a market there. The Commodore 64 was doing rather well. But this idea that you had a mass market, home computer market, where a large portion of the population was going to buy something in the $100 to $600 range had had really been busted. In 1985, John Scully, the CEO of Apple, which had largely stayed above the fray, 
was quoted in the press as saying a lot of myths about computers were exposed in 1984. One of them is that there is such a thing as the home computer market. It doesn't exist. People use computers in the home, of course, but for education and running a small business. There are not uses in the home itself. Now, Scully's not impartial. Apple did not get involved, as we said. Apple doesn't want there to be a home computer market. They want there to be a market for their new Macintosh computer. They're trying to sell the computer into the home as something that is more expensive and for professional use. So we can't say that he's completely impartial here or that he doesn't have an agenda, but that's as good a eulogy for the home computer as we can deliver. I mean, that's as good a quote to end it on as anything. Because even though computers continue to be used in the home, and even though computers continue to be used for games, even though the Commodore 64 had several more good years before the revived console market and the Nintendo Entertainment System killed it, even though Tandy essentially brought back the PC Jr. in a way by taking some of the advanced multimedia features that were present on the PC Jr. and putting those into a regular, low-cost PC that had full compatibility— even though people really were still playing games in the home on computers, and the idea of games on computers was something that continued to flourish in this period, none of that was really considered a home computer market anymore. It was computers in the home, but it wasn't anymore trying to sell the idea of the computer as a toy or the computer as a training device. The public never embraced computers in the same way again in the United States. The next wave of computers that you might consider home computers, like the Atari ST or the Commodore Amiga or the Tandy 1000, they weren't billed as toys. The Atari ST had the MIDI port and had all of the audio stuff for audiophiles. The Amiga was seen as a computer for multimedia applications and desktop publishing or word processing or all of these things as, as much as for games. Of course, the the Macintosh was very much marketed as kind of a small business, a high-end home productivity computer. Desktop publishing was an incredibly huge part of what that was. Eventually, of course, the PC compatibles took over everything, but it was a combination of, sure, we can play some games on this, but we can also do word processing. We can also do desktop publishing. We can also finally actually do the budget on these machines. We have reasonable home accounting software. It was no longer the home computers that was thought of in the early 1980s. As Scully said quite accurately, by this time, people use computers in the home, of course, but for education and running a small business. There are not uses in the home itself. And even though there would eventually be such uses again when the internet became a big thing, and even though gaming would continue to grow and grow and grow, the concept of the home computer never actually came back. And thus we lay the computer industry down to rest, only to be remembered by those who are hobbyists and those who are enthusiasts for computers, and some gamers, very much so like how it started. Absolutely. Now that the computers have died, and I am obviously not using a computer since it's dead... This is the live stream, Jeffrey. This is the one time that they get to be surprised next episode. After streaming for all this many hours, and now that we're four episodes ahead, I'm not coming up with the next topic right now. We're not going there. You're not? That's right. 
But we always do that. This is part of the, the, the flow. This is how it works. We didn't last live stream, to my recollections. This is the one time where we take a break and they just have to wait and see. I mean, we could do something cruel and heartless and make them pick. No, we are not doing that. That would be cruel and heartless for me, not cruel and heartless for them. Oh, right. They'll choose the most obscure thing imaginable, <laughs> and I'll have to try to talk about it. No, <laughs> that, that ain't happening. Okay. Well, I guess we'll just have to figure out what you're going to be listening to next time as They Create Worlds burns down, trying to figure out what the heck we're going to talk about. We'll see you next time, kids. Enjoy. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com, where we have links to some of the things that we talked about in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCWpodcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. It's free. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rolla Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. We hope you enjoyed the live stream.